Please be seated. Uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to gather as your people and to hear your word. And we pray now that you would be with me and be with us all as we come to these verses. Speak to us, we pray, and work in our hearts by the power of your spirit and in the name of your Son and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we're in these opening seven verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2. And so if possible, please do have uh, those words open in front of you. On Christmas Eve 1968, during the Apollo 8 lunar mission, as the spacecraft reappeared from passing around the other side of the moon, the three astronauts on board, Frank Borman, James Lovell, and Bill Anders, became the first human beings ever to see the whole of planet Earth all at one time. No other human being had had a vantage point like that before. And in fact, even today, there are only 24 people who have traveled far enough away from planet Earth to see the whole planet all at once. And it is a sight which changes people's outlook on life dramatically. On that day, the Apollo 8 astronauts reached for their cameras and they started taking now famous photographs of our planet as it had never been seen before. And then later that day, in what was at that time the most watched television broadcast in history, the astronauts read from the book of Genesis. And the TV screens showed a grainy black and white image of planet Earth. And one of the astronauts commented in that broadcast, here we came all this way to the moon. And yet the most significant thing we're seeing is our own home planet, the Earth. And later astronauts would echo that, that same sentiment. Here's what one such astronaut, a, a fellow called Edgar Mitchell, said about what, it, what an effect it has on you to see the whole of the Earth all at once from space. He says, you develop an instant global consciousness a people orientation, an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world and a compulsion to do something about it. And the reason I'm saying all of this is because there is a spiritual analogy to this. And you see, as Christians, it is possible to get completely absorbed in thinking only about my own personal Christian life, or my local church, or my local community. And of course we should think about those things rightly. But as well as that, there is a bigger picture out there, isn't there? 
there is a whole world to consider as well. And what the Apostle Paul wants to do in these verses at the start of 1 Timothy 2 is to give us that truly global view. He wants us to lift our eyes for a few moments from our own immediate surroundings and see, as it were, the whole world all at once. A bit like those astronauts saw the whole world all at once. And just like that view of things dramatically changed their outlook on life, this global outlook, this global vision will dramatically change our outlook as well, Paul shows us here. It will help us to understand that there is indeed a global scope to God's mission. And therefore, there must also be a global scope to our ministry as well. And to borrow those words of that astronaut once again, looking at the whole world will give to us this global consciousness, a people orientation, an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world, and a compulsion to do something about it. And I want you to see that Paul unpacks this theme of the global scope of God's mission and our ministry in four different ways in these verses. So first of all, notice this. The church must pray for all people. The church must pray for all people. Now, as you know, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. He's doing so in order to help Timothy and instruct him in how to lead the church in Ephesus through this time of crisis. He spent the first chapter addressing the crisis, uh, telling Timothy what kind of minister to be. And then the rest of the letter looks at the, the nuts and bolts of what the ministry of the whole church must look like. And it's very notable, isn't it, that the very first thing Paul addresses in the life and the ministry of the church is the prayer life of the church. How vital it is that the church prays, how vital it is that the church knows how to pray properly. And so Paul says to Timothy, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. And you notice there, don't you, that Paul uses four different words for prayer. And the first three, supplications, prayer, and intercessions, all mean pretty much the same thing. In his commentary on First Timothy, John Calvin gets to those three words, and he says this, I admit that I do not completely understand the difference between them. And if John Calvin doesn't, well, what hope do we have this morning? Basically, they all mean the same thing. That the church is to bring their requests before God. And you might ask, well, why does Paul then pile up these three different words for prayer requests? Why does he just not use one word? Why use three words for that one thing? 
And I take it is that the reason that, by putting it this way, it gives us this sense, doesn't it, that we are not to hold back in our praying. We're to ask and ask and ask. That's what Paul's saying. Or as Jesus would put it, ask and seek and knock. Keep bringing those requests before God. Don't be reticent about coming to the Father and seeking his provision. Through Jesus, we can come boldly. We can pray to our Heavenly Father about any number of things. We're to pile up our requests before God in prayer, just as Paul piles up these words for prayer. And then along with these many requests, Paul says that there must also be prayers of thanksgiving as well. Prayers that acknowledge how God has been so good to us. Prayers that acknowledge how God has answered our prayers in the past. How God has provided for us so generously and so graciously. And for whom are we to pray? And that's where we get the first hint of this global view that Paul wants to get into our minds in this passage. He says prayers should be made for all people. So pray for those who are Christians. And as well as that, pray for those who are not yet Christians. Pray for people in your church and in your community. And as well as that, pray for people in the far-flung corners of the whole world. Pray for those who've never heard the gospel. Pray for those in the few places of the world that remain where the gospel has not yet reached. Pray for people who are similar to you. Pray for people who are completely different to you. People who are different to you culturally and ethnically and politically and morally. Very simply, pray for all people. And then in verse 2, Paul focuses, doesn't he, on one particular group of people that the church must remember to pray for. Paul says we're to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Now remember this, when Paul wrote these words, there was not a single Christian ruler anywhere in the world. And what is more, Nero was the Roman emperor at the time. And as you know, Nero would bring this great and devastating persecution against the church. And it's in that context of unbelief and paganism and persecution that Paul says, pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Of course, it applies to us as well today, doesn't it? We, as the church, have got this God-given responsibility to pray for political leaders. It doesn't mean, of course, that we necessarily agree with them. It doesn't mean that necessarily we would vote for them. Paul wouldn't have agreed with Nero's policies. Given the chance, I'm sure Paul wouldn't have voted for Nero. And yet he's saying whatever we might think of our political leaders, we are to pray for them. And notice what Paul's reason is for urging the church to pray for those in authority in society. It is so that we, the church, may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified, in every way. I think John Stott sums it up well when he says, the ultimate object of our prayers for our national leaders 
is that in the context of the peace they preserve, religion and morality can flourish and evangelism can go forward without interruption. Within such a stable society, the church may be free to worship God, obey his laws, and spread his gospel. So here's the first challenge for us in these verses. Simply, how are we doing as a church and as individuals in terms of our prayers? Is there a global view in our prayer life? Do we pray for all people? Do we pray for all people in our community? Do we pray for all people in our world? And in particular, are we praying for our political leaders, even and especially in very chaotic days like these, so that in the midst of this society, the church can flourish both in her worship and in her witness? Let me encourage you to pray like this. Pray like this yourself at home. Pray like this together with your family. Pray like this as you gather Wednesday by Wednesday with the church family for our prayer gathering, as well as praying together like this on a Sunday as well. It is a great privilege, isn't it, to be able to pray for friends and associates who are missionaries in other countries, uh, taking the gospel to the far and wide corners of planet Earth. The church must pray. We must have this global vision for all people. And then here's the, the second part of Paul's global vision, and that is that God desires the salvation of all people. God desires the salvation of all people. So Paul has just been urging the, global, the church to pray with a global vision. And then he says this, this is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. So the question is, well, why is it pleasing in God's sight when the church prays with a global vision, praying for all people? And the answer that Paul gives very simply is this. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And you see, this is pleasing to God because when we pray for all people, we're lining up our prayers be behind his desire which is that all people be saved. Our prayers are in tune, if you like, with the will of God. Now, of course, there, there is a, a tricky theological question here that some of you are pondering already. And the question is, well, how do we square this verse with what the Bible says about the, the doctrine of election in particular and the doctrine of God's sovereignty in general? If God is sovereign over all things then why does he not bring about the salvation of all people? If the doctrine of election clearly says that God has chosen certain people for salvation, how can it then also say here that God desires the salvation of all people? If God has only chosen some, not all. Now that is, of course, a very good question. It's a very big question. I don't think it's possible for us to fully understand how these things all fit together, but... Here's how Calvin answers it anyway. He says, the apostles' meaning here is simply that no nation of the earth and no rank of society is excluded from salvation since God wills to offer the gospel to all without exception. Uh, and you see, Calvin is saying this. He's saying this verse is talking about all classes of people or all categories of people, we might say, 
uh, throughout the whole world. Uh, not so much speaking about every single individual person in the world. And so when Paul says that God desires all people to be saved, he means that God desires the salvation of both Jews and Gentiles, black people and white people, rich people and poor people, young people and old people, male people, female people, good people, nasty people. God desires the salvation of all people, Paul is saying here, the salvation of people of every type. And God's global vision of salvation is made very clear to us, isn't it? If we look at the story of, of the scriptures, even from beginning to end, we can trace it right back to, to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, when God, Paul tells us in Galatians 3, God preached the gospel in advance to Abraham. And how did God preach the gospel? Well, he, he preached it by saying to Abraham these words, in you, in you, Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed. And so as God preaches the gospel there to Abraham in Genesis 12, what he's saying is this. He's saying to Abraham that in you, that is in your offspring, the saving blessings of God will be poured out across the whole earth. And it will be in such a way as people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue will come to benefit from that salvation. Now, of course, we know that the offspring of Abraham, spoken of there in Genesis, is Jesus Christ. And it is through him that God's saving blessings reach out to the whole earth. This evening, when we come to Luke 24 in our evening service, we'll see that the risen Jesus underlines to his disciples God's desire for salvation to reach out to all people. He says, thus it is written in the prophets that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And so now God is about that work by his spirit through the preaching of the gospel of his son, Jesus. And he is gathering and he is perfecting this global church. And by the time we get to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the apostle John is then given a glimpse of what it will look like when that work is finally done. And John writes, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, don't you, God desires all people to be saved. And how will these people come to be saved? And the end of verse 4 says that they must come to the knowledge of the truth. And so that leads to the next question, doesn't it? What is this truth that all people, whoever they are and wherever they are from, must come to the knowledge of in order that they be saved? 
And that's what Paul unpacks for us in verses 5 and 6, which we can sum up like this. Jesus Christ is the only saviour for all people. Jesus Christ is the only saviour for all people. Now it sounds very politically incorrect, doesn't it, to say that. How can we say that Jesus is the only saviour for all people? What about all those other religions in the world and their claims about how to be saved? Well, notice that in verses 5 and 6, Paul rests this claim that Jesus Christ is the only saviour for all people on three different propositions. The first is this, the uniqueness of God's being. The uniqueness of God's being. He says simply, there is one God. That's the uniqueness of his being. There is one God. Now, Ephesus in those days was, of course, awash with many different gods, the countless different deities that were worshipped in the Greek world of that day. Of course, right at the heart of the city city of, of Ephesus stood the temple of Artemis. And today, we live in a, a world that is similarly pluralistic. So many different gods being worshipped by so many different religions. And Paul cuts straight across all of that, and he says simply, there is one God. And the one God is not Allah, the one God is not Vishnu, the one God is not Artemis, the one God is the God of the Bible, the triune God, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Through the prophet Isaiah, God says, I am the Lord, there is no other, apart from me there is no God. And so to put it bluntly, anyone who is worshipping Another God who is not the triune God of the Bible is barking up the wrong tree. Now they might be barking very sincerely and very earnestly and with a great deal of devotion. uh, But it's still the wrong tree, isn't it? There is one God and he is the God of the Bible. That's the uniqueness of God's being. And then Paul moves on to the uniqueness of Christ's person. If there is one God, the question is, how can we come to this one God? How can we be reconciled to him? How can we be forgiven by him? How can we worship him? Are we right in saying, as some do, that there is one God, but there are many different ways that people can reach him? Many different paths to the the one God. Does it really matter which religion we choose, so long as we're a good person and so long as we're sincere in our devotion? Do they all just lead to the one God in the end, one way or another? And Paul again very simply says, no, there is one God and there is only one way to him. And that way is Jesus Christ. Jesus said that himself, didn't he? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that is what Paul is saying here as well. He says there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. A mediator is, is someone who stands between two different parties, two parties that are at enmity with one another and thereby brings about a reconciliation between the two. And in this case, the two parties mentioned are God and mankind. And the enmity between the two has been brought about by sin. We, for our part, have rebelled against the one God. And he, for his part, is rightly angry at sin and must punish it. 
And the question is, who can act as the mediator between God and man? Who can stand in the middle, as it were, and provide the way of reconciliation between God and man? It's a problem that Job grappled with. I don't know if you remember the words of Job, but he grappled with this question. And he struggled to see the answer to it. He, he said, there is no arbiter between us who may lay his hand on us both. As it were, Job was looking for a mediator who could lay his hand on humanity and at the same time lay his hand upon divinity as well. And Paul says, actually, there is a mediator who fulfills those requirements. He is the man Christ Jesus. He is uniquely qualified to act as the mediator between God and man because he is himself both God and man. As God, he can represent God to man. And as man, he can represent man before God. And what has this one mediator done in order to bring about that reconciliation between God and man? And that's what Paul turns to next, isn't it? When he shows us the uniqueness of Christ's work. The uniqueness of Christ's work. Verse 6, the man Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. By his death on the cross, the mediator, Jesus Christ, took upon himself all the sin and all the guilt of all of the people whom he represents before God. He died for them there. He suffered their punishment. He paid the ransom price by his death in order to set them free. He paid for it all. And once again, Paul, you notice, underlines the global outlook here, doesn't he? He tells us Jesus didn't just come to die for a certain subset of the human race, the elite, if you like. He didn't just come to die for Jews, but Gentiles as well. He, he died for people of every nation, every tribe, every tongue. He gave his life as a ransom for all. And if you put these three propositions together, the uniqueness of God's being and the uniqueness of Christ's person and the uniqueness of Christ's work, you see that Jesus Christ is the only saviour for all people. In Acts chapter 4, the apostle Peter says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Paul is saying here, this is the truth which people must come to a knowledge of in order to be saved. Let me ask you, what have you done with this truth? This truth of the one God and the one mediator between God and man who is Christ Jesus, and what he did by giving himself as a ransom for all. Do you believe it? Do you trust in him as your saviour? And if this is the gospel that all people must believe in in order to be saved, then how will people hear it? And that brings us to the fourth aspect of this global outlook that Paul is setting before us in these verses. And so fourthly and finally, notice this, the gospel must be preached to all people. The gospel must be preached to all people. And that's what Paul comes to in verse 7. 
He says, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. You see, God called the Apostle Paul to a particular and specific role in the unfolding story of salvation. And since God desires all people to be saved, and since Jesus is the only saviour of all people, that message of salvation through faith in Jesus must go out to the whole world, to all people. And Paul would play a key part in this, in God's plan. He would be the spearhead of taking the gospel beyond the borders of Jerusalem and Judea and beyond even Samaria, out to the the fully Gentile world, even towards the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 9, at Paul's conversion, the Lord said of Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, all peoples. And so off Paul went in time to take the gospel wherever he could and to whomever he could. But of course, this has implications not just for Paul. This has implications for us as a church as well, doesn't it? In that we have been caught up into this same grand master plan of God that the gospel be preached to all people. What a privilege it is to be involved in this great work of God. Don't be sparing in only sharing the gospel with certain types of people, those who you think are most likely to respond to it. You see, don't you, that God's plan is that all people must hear the gospel. People of every type. So share it, therefore, generously with all types of people. And you see what Paul is saying in these verses don't you this morning he's showing us that there is a global outlook to God's mission and therefore also there must be a global outlook to the church's ministry as well these four things all hang together since God desires all people to be saved and because Jesus Christ is the only savior of all people the church must pray for all people and the gospel must be preached to all people And may God give us that life-changing global view that is going to transform both our prayers and our proclamation as well. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing plan of salvation, which is, as we've seen this morning, a truly global plan. You desire all people to be saved, men and women, young and old, black and white, rich and poor. They're all a part of your plan to save. And we thank you that you have provided for us the only saviour that we need, Christ Jesus, the one mediator, the one who can reconcile us to you because he gave his life as a ransom for all. And so we pray that you would give us this global outlook that will impact us and change us forever. And we're sorry for how we so easily become inward-looking and small-minded. And help us instead to look out across the whole of this planet and to pray for all people and to play our part in taking the gospel to all people, even those around us. And we thank you and praise you that across the whole world, 
the gospel is indeed bearing fruit. And we pray that the day would soon arrive when the work is done. And at last, we will be gathered before your throne with people of every nation and every tribe and every tongue. And we will cry out together before you with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In his precious name, we ask these things. Amen.